Please look with me at Romans chapter 15, and we are going to look together at verses 14 through the end of the chapter. I know it's, uh, it's probably unbelievable to you, but we're actually... We're actually going to finish Romans. So we're going to take this significant piece of Paul's letter to the Romans, which warrants a whole lot more time and attention than we can give it, but we are going to finish. So read with me at Romans 15, beginning at verse 14. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. But on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder, because of the grace given me by God, to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God, for I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ, and thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I should build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. This is the reason why I have been so often hindered from coming to you. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain, and to be helped on my journey there by you, once I have enjoyed your company for a while. At present, however, I am going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. They were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them, for if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. When therefore I have completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf, that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea, and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this wonderful passage. Thank you for how tender it is, how personal it is. Thank you for 
the things that there are here for us. And as you have given this word, would you come now by your spirit, Lord Jesus, would you walk among us? Would you open our eyes and our hearts, open our ears to receive these things? And by that same spirit, seal these things to our hearts. We pray in your name. Amen. You may be seated. The uh, sermon title listed in the bulletin is The Heart of Ministry. The Heart of Ministry. And you ask the question, what is the heart of ministry? And I think that question could be answered probably in a variety of ways, but there are a couple of main ways in which it seems to me you could answer that question. You can think of the heart of ministry in this way. You can think of it as the core of ministry the essence of ministry, the substance of ministry. And what is the core or the essence or the substance of ministry? Well, it is, it is everything that Paul has been talking about up through those first 11 chapters as he's unfolded the gospel, unpacked the gospel for these Roman Christians, these folks whom he has never met altogether, some of whom he does know, as we have observed, but he's never been to Rome. And he's going to go to Rome, and from Rome he's going to go to Spain, and so to introduce himself to those whom he's not met and whom he does not know, he's writing this letter, and he's, he's unpacking his understanding of the gospel. He calls it my gospel. The gospel as he has received it from Jesus Christ. The gospel that's been entrusted to him. The gospel that begins in the first chapter with the bad news. Right, the bad news of the reality of sin and God's wrath. God's wrath being poured out upon all ungodliness and unrighteousness among men, whether Jew or Gentile. Paul, Paul aims the laser of the gospel at the whole of humankind. And when he gets to chapter 3 and the ninth verse, He says that we all alike, whether Jew or Gentile, we all alike together are under sin. And he means two things by that. He means we are under the threat of judgment because of sin, and we are under sin as a bondage. We're imprisoned, and we're exposed to this wrath that Paul talks about as he begins to describe his gospel. And then in chapter 3, in this very densely packed, very rich, rich passage, Romans 3, beginning at verses 20 and 21, he talks to us about the solution to the problem of sin. That Jesus, as he alludes to Jesus in the first few verses of Romans chapter 1, in that introduction, that that greeting as he, as he refers to Jesus and talks about Jesus as the one who has come in fulfillment of everything the prophets predicted, the true and better son of David. So in chapter 3, he focuses upon Jesus as the one having lived a life of perfect obedience, having fulfilled all of the law, He then becomes the one who takes our sin and our brokenness and our unrighteousness upon himself. And as the perfect substitute, 
Christ dies taking that wrath which we deserve upon himself so that we are made free from the threat of judgment so that God remains just but is also the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. It's the gospel that Paul is unpacking. And in chapter 4, he reminds us that it has always been the case that faith, beginning with David and then with Abraham, Abraham being the centerpiece of chapter 4, he reminds us that faith has always been the instrument, the means by which This forgiveness, this cleansing, this justification, and all of the blessings of salvation come to someone. It never comes to you on the basis of your ethnicity. That's the problem the Jews had. They thought that because of their ethnicity, they had a get-out-of-jail-free card. Look, the gospel has to start someplace. It has to start someplace. And it starts with the Jew, but it doesn't end with the Jew. Paul says, Romans 1.17, it is for the Jew first, but it is also for the Greek. The gospel starts with the Jew, but it doesn't stop there. The Jews become the instrument, the means by which, through Christ, God extends the glad tidings of this gospel of forgiveness to the ends of the earth. It's not ethnicity. It's not who you are. It's not what you do. You can never do enough. And even if you begin to think about what you have done that you think could be enough, you have to think about this stuff on the other side of the ledger. What about that? What about the wrong that you know you have done? That's why we say here the gospel of Jesus Christ is not about what you do, it's about what God has done in Jesus Christ. So that you might be delivered and set free. And then in chapter 5 and 6 and 7 and 8, Paul goes on to talk about the incredible blessings that accrue to us because of the work of Christ. Romans 5.1, therefore we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Wouldn't you love that? Peace with God? Through our Lord Jesus Christ. And not only is there peace, but we've actually gained access into his presence through this faith. And we stand in the presence of God. And now we rejoice in the final outcome of the work of Christ. The hope of the glory of God. And then through chapter 5 and into chapter 6 and chapter 7, Paul talks more about the impact, the implications of this gospel that it actually does free us. That those who have been entrusted to Christ by the Father before the foundation of the world and who come to faith in Christ, they find that they actually have been crucified with Christ and buried with Christ and now raised to newness of life in Christ. The bondage is broken. Sometimes it doesn't feel like it. That's what chapter 7 is about. Who will deliver me from this body of death? The end of chapter 7. Paul gets that. He gets that it's a struggle. He gets that it's a fight. He gets that the job isn't finished, but he knows. He knows, nevertheless, that the bondage of sin is broken. And so chapter 8 is this unpacking of the glorious ministry of the Spirit 
in whom we live and by whom we are sustained and led until the great consummation when the curse is lifted from the earth and we know the fullness of our adoption as sons and daughters of the living God. That's what he's doing. And then in 9, 10, and 11, he he goes after this matter of the relationship between Jew and Gentile and how the gospel has always been designed first for the Jew, but also for the Gentile. Folks, there is no parenthesis in the history of redemption. There is no plan B. Disregard that. There is no plan B. There is no, this plan didn't work, and come up with a second plan for the Gentiles. The Gentiles have always been in view, and the Jews have always been the instrument and the means through which the gospel would be extended to the whole of the world. So that Gentiles together with Jews would make up one new humanity to praise the God of grace forever and ever. And then in chapters 12 and following, he's working out and applying the reality of this gospel. That's that's one way of thinking about the heart of the gospel. Let me suggest to you that there's another way to think about the heart of ministry or the heart of the gospel. Gospel is certainly about what God has done in Jesus Christ. It starts there. It stays there. But here's the other way you answer the heart of ministry question. It is about people. It is about people. And there are three words that I want to give you that underscore that the gospel is not only about what God and what God has done, but the gospel, the ministry, is about people. Folks, sadly, sadly, sometimes in ministry, ministry can lose sight of people. And it didn't happen for Paul. So here are the words, three words, affirmation, extension, and reconciliation. And Jim, I will get to all three this morning. Maybe one o'clock before we're done, but I will get to all three. Affirmation, honest affirmation. Look at verse 14. Don't you love what Paul says here? I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. You find that stunning? I'm, I'm persuaded about this. I am satisfied about this, that you are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. You all know what my favorite verse is, right? You gave it to me Friday night. It's hanging in our living room. It will stay there until we move. Genesis 3.15. The first promise, the promise of the serpent crusher. Some of you know that 
my second favorite verse is Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can understand it? I use that verse when I do weddings and I speak to the bride and the groom. That's the verse that's the text for my homily at a wedding ceremony with a bride clothed in white and her mother horrified that I would say such a thing about her daughter. But here's why that verse is my second favorite verse. My favorite verse is Genesis 3.15 because it's the promise that sin in all of its evidences one day will be eradicated. The reason Jeremiah 17.9 is my second favorite verse is because it serves as a reminder to me of myself and my capacity for self-deception. And I think I've been guilty of this, and I think we can be guilty of this. We can so emphasize the corruption of the heart and the deceitfulness of sin that we can fail to see or we can minimize the reality of the effects of the gospel, that the gospel does, in fact, change people. And the fruit of that change is that they become good. They become good. They become people characterized by goodness. They become people who begin to be filled with all goodness. That's what Paul says about these Roman Christians. You are full of goodness. Does that cause you to wince? Don't wince. Celebrate. That the gospel produces real change in people's lives. And a failure to recognize that and to affirm the reality of that is, in effect, a denial of the gospel. We don't want to deny the gospel. We want to affirm its reality and its power. And that's what Paul is doing here. I think it's helpful. I think it's helpful to understand what goodness is in its purest and simplest form. It's a word that first appears in Genesis chapter 1. God is the first one to use that word in the Bible. And when God uses that word in the Bible, it has the connotation of God taking delight in, finding pleasure in those things which fulfill the purpose for which they were created. God looks at his works in creation and says, this is what I intended. This was my design. This was my purpose for that particular thing. And folks, as the gospel works its way ever more deeply into the fabric of our existence, it is goodness that begins to emerge. This is not about being nice. It's not about being polite. It's not about being moral. It's not about using the proper fork at the dinner table and not resting on your elbows when you eat. It's not about holding the door for your wife when she gets into the car. Though, brothers, I wish you would do that. I wish you would do those things. 
No, this is about something bigger and far more grand than cultural habits as good as those things might be. This is about beginning to give expression to the end for which you were made. The glorifying of God across every area of life and the rejoicing and delighting in him forever. That's what Paul, I can't wait to ask him. That's what Paul has in mind. Much more than cultural habits. And he says, you are, you are manifesting this. They had, they had begun to demonstrate the character that emerges. The character that emerges as the gospel begins to take root. And they were capable of something. They had power to instruct. They had knowledge. Now think about these folks living in Rome very quickly. If you look at chapter 16, you see names like Priscilla and Aquila. You see the name of a woman named Junius, who is highly regarded among the apostles. You see the names of other people living in Rome. Here's the dynamic. If we could sort of watch the grass grow at 2,000 years distance, here's the dynamic. You have young Christians and older Christians. You have Jews and Gentiles. They're coming together. And there are those among them, people like Priscilla and Aquila, who were Jews, Jewish converts, deeply steeped in the Old Testament scriptures, who when they encountered Christ, found that all of those scriptures and all of those promises fell into place and things began to click and the lights went on and they were suddenly thrust into these positions of being able to teach those Gentiles and Jews who may not have been quite as familiar with the scriptures the realities of the gospel of Christ. This church had been given gifts. They possessed knowledge of the gospel. Such was that knowledge that they were able even to instruct And the word in the text is used for a variety of reasons. It can refer to a warning. It can refer to persuasion. It can refer to teaching. The word literally means to set before the mind, to put before the mind. And there were people in this church who had the ability to do that. And Paul commends them for it and in effect says, do it. Teach, instruct, warn. You have the power. Dunamis is the word in the text. You have the ability. Dunamis, dynamite. You have the power to do this. So encourage and teach and and instruct one another. What Paul is saying is simply this. You who have gifts and knowledge, put them to use. You who need to be taught, who need to be instructed, who need to be warned, be instructed, be taught. In a nutshell, that's what he's doing. He's just saying, be the church. Be the church. It's a wonderful picture of the church. And folks, it's all true here. It's all true here. This is a church rich in goodness. You know, whenever you preach a sermon like this and you see Paul, doing what he's doing, affirming, commending, it brings me up short because what I'm painfully aware of is my failure to do this enough. To say to this congregation, this congregation, 
is like the church at Rome, a church filled with goodness. Perfect? Oh no, I've been the pastor here for eight years. Perfect? No. Filled with goodness? Yes. And the evidences of it all coalesced, much to Barb's and my benefit this last Friday night. I said to a couple of people, when people were talking about Barb, I knew who they were talking about. When they were talking about the other guy, I didn't know who they were talking about. The kind things that were said on Friday night of Barb and me are the coalescing of the reality of goodness in this congregation. And here's what I wish for you. Here's what I wish for you and pray for you, that your next pastor will see it, will know it, will himself be the beneficiary of it. I pray for someone who will come here and who will be ensconced in the goodness, the knowledge, the ability to teach and instruct and warn and admonish one another that is here in this congregation. That's the first word, affirmation. And I I hope and I pray that this pastor, when he comes, will, as we have been, be the beneficiary of it all. It's true of this congregation. And here's the second thing. Here's the second thing. I hope that when this new pastor comes, in addition to being a pastor who will enjoy and affirm the realities of the goodness that is in this congregation, there will be a second thing, extension. What do I mean? What do I mean by extension? I mean simply this. And again, it would be a great thing to take an hour just to sort of weave this beautiful story that the apostle is telling here. What I mean is simply this. Paul loved and cared not only for these Christians in Rome. He loved these people. Even though he hadn't met most of them, he loved them. They mattered to him. They mattered so much, if I could back up just a second, they mattered so much to him that verse 15, he was willing to speak boldly to them at points where they needed to be spoken to boldly. That's how much he loved them. And he spoke to them boldly, affirming them and speaking boldly to them because he had a vision of his own ministry as a priest offering these people as a sacrifice acceptable to God. He saw himself holding these people in the way that I hold my grandson, Sam. A precious gift. And what does he want for them? He wants for them what I want for Sam. I want Sam to become fully formed, fully shaped, fully in love with Jesus, so in love with Jesus that he reflects the image of Jesus to the world around. And that's what Paul wanted for them. He loved them well. He affirmed them. He spoke boldly to them because he saw them as a precious gift to be offered back to God. But he didn't only love them. He loved the nations. 
He loved the nations. Paul loved and cared for and was compelled to minister to those who had never heard the gospel before. He says, verse 23, there's no longer any room for me to do ministry. No longer any room. Does he mean there's no longer work to be done? Of course not. But here's what happened. He says, beginning at Jerusalem and then going to Illyricum, which is in what used to be the southern part of Yugoslavia, across all of Asia Minor, and then, and then across from Asia Minor into what is now Europe and the Balkans, that old part of southern Yugoslavia, Paul had preached the gospel. He'd gone there. He'd done that. And he'd gone to metropolitan centers like Thessalonica and Ephesus and Constantinople, near Constantinople. And he had preached the gospel in these places. And the gospel, as he says in 1 Thessalonians, had sounded forth in the case of Thessalonica from Thessalonica to all the regions around. And Paul looked at his 20, 25 years of labor and saw these churches being planted, self-sustaining churches, and he said, I'm done here. There's more to be done. And he wanted, as he says two times, he wanted to go to Spain because he loved the people of Rome and he loved the people of Spain. Paul founded the first Hispanic ministry. A Jew with a vision that extended well beyond the confines of his own hometown, his own country, and even places where he had planted churches to far removed places like Spain. My hunch is that Paul knew about Britain and hoped that maybe after he got to Spain and the gospel got planted there, if he lived long enough, he could actually go beyond Spain to Britain. The Roman Empire extended that far, Hadrian's Wall. He had a vision, just like the vision of his Savior, a vision for the nations. And that's why he quotes in verse 21 from Isaiah 52, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. Proof text, the justification for his going to Rome and then on to Spain. And what did he want from the Roman Christians? Bottom line, he wanted support. He wanted support. He wanted for them to assist him. He wanted for them to partner with him in the extension of the gospel to the nation. So here's my second prayer for your new pastor. My first prayer is that he will love you and affirm you and speak boldly to you. My first prayer is that he will revel in the goodness and the giftedness that is here, that he will be a good steward of all of that. But I want him to love beyond this congregation, just as you have loved beyond yourself. I want your new pastor to love the nations. I want your new pastor to look over the horizon of the current ministry and ministries of this church to see the nations. And I'll be happy to take him with me to Tanzania 
if you put it in your budget, I'll take him with me. But even beyond that, for an enlarged and ever-enlarging ministry of the gospel beyond the confines of this building, out into this community, and beyond this community, out into the nations of the world. Paul cared, cared about the gospel. The gospel was the heart of ministry. But people were the heart of ministry. Those whom he knew, those whom he didn't know, those whom he knew who were out there and for whom Christ had died and to whom God had sent him, that they might hear the glad tidings of forgiveness and freedom in Jesus. That's what I pray for you. That's what I pray for your new pastor. I certainly want him to be a whole lot of things. But I want him to know what he has here. And I want him to have a heart for the nations. And then here's the third word, reconciliation. Paul wants to go to Rome because he wants to go to Spain. He wants the Romans to help him get there. But before going to Rome and then on to Spain, he wants to go in the opposite direction. He's in Corinth when he writes this letter. That's probably how he got to know Priscilla and Aquila. They had been kicked out of Rome. They came to Corinth. Paul probably met them in Corinth. They now have gone back to Rome. He wants to go to Rome, but he wants to go in the opposite direction. He wants to go to Jerusalem. And why does he want to go to Jerusalem? You can read it in these verses, in this passage again. Verses 25 to 27, and and sort of on either side of it. He wants to go to Jerusalem to demonstrate that the power of the gospel not only produces goodness among a group of people, not only results in gifts being used so that people encourage and strengthen one another. Paul wants to go to Jerusalem not only because the gospel is a demonstration of those things, but because the gospel has power to bring reconciliation not only between God and man, but between man and man. Paul, a Jew, has collected an offering from Gentiles in Achaia and Macedonia. Gentiles. And he has collected that offering Because Jews back in Jerusalem are suffering persecution, they are destitute, they've lost jobs, they've been kicked out of families, some of them have been put to death, they have been harassed and scattered, they are poor and they are in need. And Paul in this passage reminds these Roman Christians, says application to these Gentiles in this congregation, that these Gentiles in Achaia and Macedonia share in the spiritual blessings of Abraham. They share in the hope of the Messiah and all the Messiah gives. And because they share in those blessings and because they have been prospered and blessed materially, many of them, some of them haven't. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 9 that many people are giving out of their poverty 
in order to meet the needs of their brothers and sisters, Jews lacking back in Jerusalem. The Corinthians themselves are prosperous. And he's appealing to them as he writes 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. The Corinthians and others in this region have prospered. And Paul is saying, look, you're sharing in the blessings of Abraham, the hope of the Messiah, the promise of a kingdom, the assurance of forgiveness and cleansing, and the hope of eternal life. Would you please share from your material blessings with your Jewish brothers and sisters? And the reason he is so passionate about this is because that gift given by Gentiles to Jews back in Jerusalem will demonstrate the power of the gospel to heal and bridge divides. Folks, the gospel is big enough to heal the divide that exists between you and a spouse, you and a neighbor, you and an estranged family member. The gospel is big enough. Nothing else is. The gospel is big enough to heal the divides created by politics. and economic philosophy and practice and implementation. The gospel is big enough to heal racial divides. I'm going to Memphis. In all earnestness, please pray. The divide there is still deep. The gospel is big enough to bridge divides. And Paul wants to take this gift in the opposite direction from where he wants to go. Asking, asking them to pray that he'll be protected because he knows he has detractors and he has enemies back in Jerusalem. Asking that these Roman Christians would pray for him that he'd be kept safe so that he might deliver his gift so that there might be this demonstration of the power of the gospel so that he then could come to Rome. You know what happened, don't you? God answered that prayer but not in the way Paul expected. Paul was arrested, was stuck for two years in Caesarea, and finally made an appeal to Caesar, and it was by that appeal to Caesar that he did finally get to Rome in order to meet these people. The tradition of the church, we have no confirmation of this, but there's a strong tradition in the church that suggests that Paul was released from that Roman imprisonment and did go to Spain, but when he came back to Rome, was arrested again and eventually beheaded for the faith. Paul wanted to go to Rome, but he had to go to Jerusalem first to show that the gospel has power to change. People and families and cities and even towns, villages. And as the gospel brings that kind of change, whole swaths of culture begin to be changed.
So I pray for a pastor for you who will affirm you while speaking boldly in order to drive you more deeply into the riches of Christ. I pray for you for a pastor who will love you and the nations. And I pray for you for a pastor who will love the power of the gospel and its ability to bring reconciliation not only between God and man, but between man and man. May God put his own gospel of grace more on display in the midst of this congregation in these ways for years to come. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you for the hope that you give us. Thank you that our lives are in your hands. Thank you that you have great and grand purposes for us all. We trust you, we look to you, and we ask you that by your grace, we might have the privilege in five and 10 and 15 and 20 and 30 years, the privilege of looking back and saying, you did that. You built, you strengthened, you enlarged, you blessed Christ the King so that more goodness and more giftedness, more love of the nations and more deep and lasting reconciliation were all accomplished. Lord, hear this prayer. It's not offered lightly. Hear this prayer. In Jesus' name, amen.